Stunning. Recording in progress. Okay, we are live. Okay, great. All right, well, I'd like to welcome everyone to the City of Alameda Planning Board meeting for February 28th, 2022. Uh, we'll start off by having the flag salute um, if board members. Recording in progress. Certainly. Um, board member Cisneros? Here. Curtis? Here. Hom? Here. Rothenberg? She's muted. I see that yeah. she's here. Yes. Uh, Vice President Rees? And just uh, for the record, um, board member Teague has an excused absence this evening. And then lastly, President Sahaba? Present. And we have a quorum. Okay, great. Um, next item. Uh, does anyone have anything on the agenda for changes or discussion? Okay, seeing that there's no comment there, we'll move on. Oral communications. Anyone may address the board on a topic not on the agenda under this item by raising your hand. Uh, would anyone who is attending like to speak on an item not on the agenda, please raise your hand. Do we have anyone? We have one person. Okay. Uh, their name is Kimi Sagoka. Great. Can you hear me now? Yes, yes, we can hear you. Hi, thank you for... Um, allowing me to address the board. My name is Kimi Sugioka. I am a resident of Alameda at 950 Shore Point Court. I'm, um, <clears throat> I'm having difficulty with all the construction that has been on going since uh, June on this street that's taken over basically the whole block is usually six days a week and is extremely noisy and um, I distract, you know, just distressing. Um, and uh, more significantly, they have installed an air air conditioning units across the uh, fire trail from from where my bedroom is. And um, often those units go on at night. I, I don't know if they're for heating, cooling, probably maybe both, but they, um, I've measured them as over 50 decibels and, um, at night and they wake me up and they disturb my sleep, disturb my rest. And I would, um, I would like that to be looked into please. Um, I'm, I feel like Maximus is not living up to its, uh, <clears throat> to its, what what it says it's going to do is heightening the quality of life for res residents, neighbors, and visitors because it has not the 
company has not been considerate of the residents in the neighborhood. Do you need any more information than that? Uh, no, thank you. I guess Andrew or Alan, is, is this the right forum for Kimi to um, contact or should there be someone else in the city? Yeah, I would say, Ms. Sugiyoka, um, if you want to reach out to me, um, you may certainly do so. Um, I, is there a way to message? Or you know what? The best way would be to um, call the planning department. We can follow up. I have called uh, what? What's a the couple project? of times and I've submitted This is the South Shore Apartments, Andrew. I, I know and the project. And, and, the, and, the, and the construction project that is causing these problems is what? Maximus. Investment company. Is that a construction project or is this a? Um, it's a renovation just... of the entire block of condominiums. Where? On South yeah, on South Shore Apartments. Yeah. Okay. This is the same project as the um, as the duck pond question. Got it. So I should contact <laughs> yeah, I... you directly, Mr. Tai. Yes, or if you uh, reach out to our planning general number, I will know of uh, you reaching out to us. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, thank you. All right, we'll continue to move on, um, seeing that no one else has raised their hand to speak. Uh, next item, consent calendar, there's uh, nothing under that item so we'll move on to regular agenda items uh first item 7a this is to endorse the annual report on climate action and resiliency plan and the annual report on transportation uh, do we have a presentation on this i believe there are two um we have uh, okay. danielle miller our sustainability manager as well as lisa foster our senior transportation planner and we can go in either order. Why don't you, well, I, don't, I think we've usually been going, having you go first, Danielle, you want to go ahead? Okay, thank you. Um, let me just share my screen. Is that okay for everyone? Yes. Great. Good evening, President Sahaba and planning board members. My name is Danielle Miller. I'm the Sustainability and Resilience Manager for the City of Alameda, and I'm here tonight to present the Climate Action and Resiliency Plan 2021 Annual Report. Um, we're presenting annual reports to City Council, boards and commissions, and community partners each year to share our progress and set our priorities for the coming year. And we'll be presenting um, the annual report to Council um, in March, we hope. Um, our Alameda's Climate Action and Resiliency Plan was adopted in 2019, and it provides a framework for our climate and resilience work as a city. Our goals are to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50% below 2005 levels by 2030, and to prepare Alameda for the climate change impacts of flooding, groundwater uh, rise, drought, extreme heat, hazardous air quality, and earthquakes and liquefaction. Um, in 2019, City Council also declared a climate emergency, which calls, calls for achieving net zero emissions as soon as possible and no later than 2030. Despite our best efforts, Alameda will still see significant impacts from climate change, and CARP recommends a strategy for helping adapt to these changes and secure our future on the island. 
CARP envisions um, equitably achieving our goals in ways that enhance quality of life, create good jobs, and a resilient and thriving community. In 2021, staff was able to accelerate our efforts to meet key milestones for CARP implementation. Um, I won't go into all of the uh, highlights now, they're in our annual report, but I did want to recognize that many of these accomplishments resulted from actions the planning board took, such as the all-electric reach code uh, for new buildings, amending the off-street parking ordinance, the gas-powered leaf blower ban, and the general plan update and um, climate adaptation and hazard mitigation plan update. In 2022, staff have identified 15 priorities for CARP implementation. Um, and tonight, I'm just going to dive into three of these. Again, there are details on all of the priorities um, in the annual report itself. But there were three that I think are most pertinent to the planning board. And those are our adaptation efforts, our equitable existing buildings electrification roadmap, and um, the Cool City Challenge. On the adaptation front, um, the city is moving forward on a number of key sea level rise adaptation projects. In 2021, oh, so sorry. In 2021, staff convened the San Leandro Bay Oakland Alameda Estuary Adaptation Working Group, bringing together more than 25 agencies in the region to collaboratively and equitably prepare for sea level rise. In 2022, we'll be seeking uh, funding to advance this working group by developing a vision and action plan and formalizing its organizational structure. Um, a subgroup of this working group is also coordinating to address identified flooding vulnerabilities on Doolittle Drive, and staff is continuing to seek funding for projects at Veterans Court and the Northern Shoreline near Posey Webster Tubes. Um, in 2022, staff is also planning to develop a citywide adaptation pathways master plan that will identify policies and projects necessary to prepare for sea level and groundwater rise in the short and long term and serve as a roadmap for guiding adaptation in alignment with the city's and uh, regional vision. On the building electrification priority, um, CARP has goals for reducing natural gas use in buildings, which account for 30% of our citywide uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Natural gas appliances emit methane, which is 86%, 86 times more potent than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. And it contributes to unhealthy air in the home. And children living in homes with gas appliances have been, been found to be 42% more likely to develop asthma. Um, the way we're gonna achieve our building emissions reductions is by switching up gas appliances for ones that run on electricity. There's some really exciting uh, technologies coming on the market and that are on the market. Appliances that are three to, time, three to five times as efficient as their gas counterparts and safer and cleaner. Uh, space heating is one of the largest generators of air pollution in California and the largest user of natural gas in a home. Instead of burning fuel, there's new heat pump technologies that use refrigerants to move heat from one place to another, like a refrigerator. They're more efficient, more consistent, and offer more control. Plus, one heat pump can replace both heating and air conditioning units. Um, the second largest user of natural gas in a home that contributes to poor air quality is the water heater. And that also can be replaced with a heat pump, which transfers heat from the surrounding air into a hot water tank. Heat pump heaters are three times more efficient than conventional water heaters. And if you have a solar panels on your home, you can think of that heat pump water heater as a battery that stores the electricity you generate in the form of hot water that you can use later when the sun isn't shining. So if there's one action that a resident could focus on today, it's to convert their hot water heater. 
there's significant incentives to make it very affordable and it's a significant use of natural gas in the homes. And then also you can replace um, electric and heat pump dryers can replace gas ones. And there's um, new electric induction cooktops that use magnets to transfer heat directly to the pan through induction. Um, compared to the old electric coil ranges, they, are, they heat up faster, they offer more precision, precision and they're safer. Um, so as I mentioned, we're developing this equitable existing buildings roadmap, and it will provide a phased approach that includes new policies for electrification of existing buildings, financing options, expanded rebates, and community education and outreach. Um, the roadmap will align with other citywide efforts to create affordable, safe, healthy, and resilient housing and prepare the city to leverage federal stimulus dollars as they be become available. Um, we're basing this roadmap on the principle that everyone, especially low and moderate income households, should be able to affordably switch to modern electric equipment. The, the electrification process should be as simple and seamless as possible, and our timeline should be aggressive but realistic about the challenges. Um, so we'll be holding a workshop, an Electrification 101 workshop, to talk more about the technologies and incentives available on March 16th at the West End uh, Library. Um, and we'll, this will be the first in a series of workshops as we develop our roadmap. And we'll be back to the planning board um, later this spring or summer with more details on the, on the roadmap and some of our proposed uh, policies. And then finally, um, we'll be looking to apply for the Cool City Challenge in 2022, which awards a million dollars to implement a climate moonshot strategy for cities that become carbon neutral by 2030. As part of the application process, a moonshot team will, would recruit 25 partner organizations to participate in the challenge and 200 cool block leaders who are ready to work with their neighbors to make some change in their own homes and in their neighborhoods. Um, the Cool Cities Challenge and the Cool Blocks program is based on the idea that with bottom-up behavior change in combination with policy, technology, and market creation can achieve substantial carbon reduction. The award, if we um, receive it, would provide us with significant resources to help Alameda achieve its CARP goals around decarbonizing transportation and buildings. Um, last year, Alameda, or sorry, Los Angeles, Petaluma, and Irvine won the grant and this year they'll be awarding 25 cities in California along with 25 cities from the rest of the nation, the $1 million prize. And for those cities that develop the most innovative approach and achieve carbon neutrality, there is a, an additional $25 million uh, prize. So our next steps as a city would be to bring a carbon neutral resolution to council for consideration and form the climate moonshot team in preparation for the application and we anticipate the application process to open in March. So that concludes my presentation. At this time, we're seeking um, the board's feedback on the annual report and your endorsement of our priorities. And I'm happy to take any questions following the presentation on the transportation plan. Thank you. I guess we'll go to the next presentation. Okay. Uh, let me share my screen. I just froze in my. 
Okay, I froze for a little bit. Uh, am I, are you seeing the? Yeah, we can, we can see your screen, yep. Okay, apologies for the delay there. All right, good evening, President Sahiba and planning board members. I'm Lisa Foster, Senior Transportation Coordinator with the City of Alameda. And I'm here to offer you a summary of our annual report on transportation, which of course represents the work of multiple staff members and departments. With the recently adopted Vision Zero Action Plan, the city set a goal of zero traffic deaths or severe injuries by 2035. So this information is front and center on our st status report. Sadly, just as in 2020, in 2021, four people lost their lives on Alameda streets. In addition, nine people suffered serious injuries and 158 total were injured. The total injuries is lower than our averages from 2009 to 2018, even though the most recent fatalities have been higher. This aligns with national trends, which have shown sharp increases in fatal crashes and increases in crash severity, with fewer cars on the road, but more severe crashes when they occur. Pandemic has, of course, changed our lives in many ways, including how and whether we get around. AC Transit reports that the lines that serve Alameda are currently at about 50% of pre-pandemic ridership levels. WIDA ferries uh, system-wide are at about 50%. BART's only at 30%. Um, POSI tube traffic, auto traffic as of 2020 was at 90% of pre-pandemic. And um, the Bay Bridge total vehicle volume um, was at 82% in 2020, rising to 92% in 2021. As part of the city's efforts to make our streets safer, in 2021, we put new daylighting to increase, invis to increase visibility at 76 intersections, added new curb bulb outs at five intersections, and uh, striped new high visibility crosswalks at 29 intersections. We also had a banner year for new bikeways with 2.5 miles of new bikeways constructed in 2021, which is the most we've done in any year, in any one year since 2018, and most of them were protected. Um, and we also added 90 new, actually over 90 new bicycle parking spaces, most of which were in the city's first on-street um, bike parking corrals on Park and Webster. In terms of transportation plans, we, um, the Vision Zero Action Plan, which the planning board recommended for approval, was adopted by city council in December. And of course, as you know, the general plan with its mobility element was also adopted. In 2021, we plan to um, restart the dormant active transportation plan with the goal of having it adopted by the end of the year. And we're also working on mobility elements, street classification maps, updates, and um, a final smart city master plan should be coming to council soon. 2021 brought Alameda two major new transportation options. These are the new Seaplane Lagoon Ferry Service, and the new AC Transit Line 78 pilot that services the ferry terminal and also crosses Alameda on its way there. We also launched a new Uber and Lyft concierge service for paratransit users. In 2022, um, WIDA, the ferry provider, 
plans to begin refurbishing the Main Street Ferry Terminal and AC Transit will evaluate that line 28 to see whether they want to continue it. Transportation programs, our accomplishments in 2021 included hiring a third senior transportation coordinator who is currently focused on Vision Zero and on public parking management planning. Happens to be me. Um, we also adopted an update to our citywide parking ordinance with careful consideration by the planning board, making our zoning code match city goals related to mode shift and greenhouse gas emissions by establishing parking maximums instead of minimums and requiring certain levels of EV charging spaces. We also um, received approval to move parking enforcement from the police department to public works. And in 2022, we, in the spring, um, Public Works will launch the new Alameda Parking Enforcement Service. And we also plan to begin paid parking at Seaplane Lagoon Ferry Terminal at some point this year. Um, that one happens to be prioritized because of that line 78 AC Transit line. We'll also finalize a citywide roundabout screening analysis and do a best practice scan on rapid response programs after fatal crashes and come up with a recommendation for the city. The annual report includes this really great map of the many capital projects we're working on in 2022. I do recommend looking at it more closely um, at another time if you are interested. Um, the red and orange items are projects expected to be constructed or at least begin construction this year. These include the daylighting, resurfacing, slow streets enhancements, and safe routes to school projects. I'll go into a little more. We also have the Clement Avenue safety improvements between Grant and Broadway scheduled for construction later this year, which will complete another segment of the Cross Alameda Trail. And Caltrans will be starting new two new projects. They'll be installing flashing lights at crosswalks at six locations and resurfacing and reconfiguring Ensenal between Sherman and Broadway. The blue color on the map shows projects that will be in the design phase in 2022. These include finalizing the design for the Central Avenue Safety Improvement Project so that those can be constructed in early 2023. And we're also launching public engagement and the design process for the Lincoln Marshall Pacific Corridor Project, which covers three miles of this high injury corridor between Broadway and Lincoln um, on the east end all the way out to Pacific and Maine at Alameda Point. And we are also starting the design for the Clement Extension and Tilden Way project, which will extend the Cross Alameda Trail to the Miller Sweeney Bridge, otherwise known as the Fruitvale Bridge. The Commercial Streets and Slow Streets programs launched in 2020, and in 2021, we extended the Park Street restriping, added a new Slow Street in Alameda Point, and completed extensive program evaluations. Council approved extending the Commercial Streets program for two years and the Slow Streets program until the active transportation plan is adopted. In 2022, uh, the Commercial Streets program plans to update the Parklet Permit program return parking to two hours in most places. Meters have already been updated. Begin enforcement improvements and adding new short-term and disability parking zones. 
the Slow Streets program plans to implement select enhancements and develop long-term recommendations as part of the active transportation plan. Finally, the annual report on transportation includes a list of grant application priorities for 2022. This priority project list was developed by scoring projects based on city goals, um, based on the general plan mobility element goals, uh, plus taking into consideration existing funding allocations and other grants. Um, so I'm gonna close out there. Staff, uh, same as uh, Danielle said, we recommend that the planning board endorse this report and give you feedback. And we do plan to also take it to city council, hoping for March 15th. Oh. Stop there. Thank you. So before we open it up for public comments uh, on either report, if anyone on the board has any questions or clarifications, please raise your hand. Uh, board member Curtis. Hi. Um, Am I, am I muted? No. Uh, Lisa, you did a very good job. It was a great presentation. But I have, I, in looking at the the thing with the traffic and the intersections, um, I, I have a special interest in, in the intersection of Broadway and Otis. Um, there, my wife was hit by a car there two years ago. And I've watched that intersection because the, the corner going south is set back. And I've seen several instances where somebody has almost gotten hit, where people have gone around that corner because it's hard to see anything. And I see the plans for, um, for improving the intersections, but I see nothing done really other than a, a code of four, which says it's, it's they're going to enhance the intersection. But what are they going to do about that? Because I watch that all the time and I constantly see close calls. Uh, she was laid up for three months over that accident. And, and frankly, she was one of the three that was seriously injured that year in 2021. What can they do about that intersection and intersections that are similar that create a hazard right on the surface? I am so sorry to hear about your wife. I hope she healed well. Um, that the, I'm the issue is really... the, the safety of the intersection. Yes, um, so that intersection is uh, managed by uh, Caltrans as part of Route uh, 61. They are um, starting their planning process for improvements to the eastern end of Otis now. So that will be in the coming years. Um, I am pretty sure this is where they did install a left turn arrow uh, last year so that that would make it much safer for pedestrians crossing because then they get a protected time to cross without left turning cars. No, the, the problem is in the right turn um, going, going south. And, you know, you talk about rapid response, yet, you know, you had three serious injuries in 21 of which my wife was one of them. And I've watched consistently, I, I walk that all the time and I have the same problem. So where is the rapid response if Caltrans is doing it, yet this presents a safety hazard? What can we, and this is no criticism to you, believe me. What can we do as a city to take these intersections that provide a, a specific risk or an enhanced risk and do something about them quickly? Um, I appreciate your feedback. I will definitely you know, give your, your feedback to Caltrans and, this is, you know, this is the kind of stuff we are working on, how we can do 
rapid response to major crashes and how to address major intersections that need uh, improvements. Okay, just for the record, that is a dangerous intersection. I wanted to, to reflect in the minutes that I, I brought that up. Thank you. Thank you, Board Member Curtis. Uh, Board Member Rothenberg. Thank you for the excellent, as usual, excellent presentations and reports um, uh, and meaningful and appropriate. I had a question for um, uh, Ms. Myler about the budget and funding needs in the CARP report in regard to the last bullet $500,000 local match for $1.5 million earmark in the federal budget for the Veterans Court Area Adaptation Project. This is really a clarification, but just refer, because it's the biggest number. Actually, I thought the numbers, having uh, done work in the public sector for a long time, I think the numbers are really modest for the, for the breadth of what you're accomplishing. But that was the biggest numbers. And and I'm not asking you to uh, validate information from the press, but the Alameda Sun had an article in the February 24th paper, Depaved Park slated to receive a planning grant from the SF Bay Restoration Authority in regard to, to uh, the tidal wetlands at Alameda Point, I'm reading, which integrate with the adjacent wetland on the Veterans Affairs property. And they said it was 800,000. So is that just clarify for me and forgive me if I'm getting two different things confused, but is, is that the same? The VA property is a particular uh, uh, property at the point. And so are those two things related? And then just to close on it, if, if you think that, as you've proposed earlier, if you think, if we think that, um, you, you know, we, we need, um, well, I'll just, I'll close with that and let you answer and I'll come back and ask another question later. Thank you. Thanks for your question. Um, those are actually two different project locations. So the VA administration project is at Alameda Point. The Veterans Court project is the one at the touchdown of the Bay Farm Island Bridge on the Bay Farm side. Oh, okay. So, oh, yeah. yes. They're to two totally different yeah. places. Okay. Thank you. No problem. Okay, thank you. Board Member Cisneros. Thank you for the presentation and for the reports. Uh, just a couple of quick clarification questions. Um, I never heard of this uh, cool city um, program. It sounds cool. <laughs> and um, I, I, I know what the word moonshot means, but can you just expound a little bit of like what a moonshot team consists of and it like is it like grassroots organizations that are involved in this space and um its idea to mobilize like with the block like 200 block leaders uh to like mobilize um Alameda residents as volunteers um, I'm just curious about more information on that yeah thank you um the idea is is sort of a joint city and grassroots effort so um, it's sort of a top up and or bottom up and top down approach coming together and trying to really um, what they're calling, you know, achieve the climate moonshot of our time to achieve carbon neutrality by 2030, which is obviously a tall and very fast order. And, you know, we don't know if we can make it, but um, we and everyone you know needs to try. So 
Um, the idea is to mobilize the community, mobilize community organizations, and mobilize the city to sort of all work together. Um, so um, the guidance for the for this year's round should be coming out in March sometime, and we'll find out more details then. But um, the first task is to put together sort of this moonshot team, which is kind of a, a steering committee to um, put together the application, recruit the organizations, and then the organizations in turn recruit the community leaders. In the cities that did this challenge last year, there was about five to eight, I think, members on their um, on their moonshot team. Um, several of them had council members or other elected officials, and then you know just different mem mem representing all different segments of society of the community. So nonprofits and businesses and civic organizations. Um, and then I think one or two city staff. Um, so just trying to put together like a, a really diverse team to bring together all the different segments. That's helpful. Um, thanks for clarifying that. Uh, two more quick questions. Um, uh, I know you went pretty quickly uh, in your overview. Sorry, I'm hearing my, my echoing back. I don't know if you all can hear that. Can't hear it. Good, because <laughs> I cannot hear it. Um, I guess it was like 15 or so 2022 uh, work plan priorities. Um, and I was wondering how those tie to your needs attention items. Like I know you spoke to, for example, the electrification, like and encouraging, um, you know, more, more uh, adoption and usage of um, electric appliances. Uh, I didn't necessarily, or maybe I overlooked it, see that with the 2022 work plans. So I'm just curious um, if that wasn't uh, thought of in the 2024 plan, is that considered more for like 2023 or longer term just because it is such a big thing to tackle? Yeah, thank you. Um, we did try to connect our, some of our 2022 priorities with those items that were identified as needing attention for CARP implementation. Some of the items for CARP implementation that needed attention were um, items that are prioritized in CARP also for later years. So, um, but we did try to, to tie our priorities with those places where we feel like we need to focus more attention. Okay. Um, yeah, for me, I, I probably didn't see that direct tie. That probably would have been helpful for me, but so I just wanted to relate that. And then my last question related to the um, transportation report, um, it was mentioned with the criteria for the prioritizations um, of the projects that I guess it, um, this capital budget uh, scoring was used. Um, I wonder how many of these projects could have been scored to the criteria already being used in the grant programs. I don't know if that makes sense, but like it, it seemed like the criteria was more of an internal um, uh, type process as opposed to like looking at the grant program and seeing what Mm -hmm. what their criteria or priorities are. Uh, if I, am I wrong with that assessment or? Oh, you know, we have um, so many projects 
that could be done that we needed to prioritize our efforts, but certainly we wouldn't apply a, you know, for a grant without knowing that it aligns with that grant, uh, grantor's priorities. So yeah, we're, we're trying to take the set of projects that we have, that have risen to the top based on our priorities and see which ones they, you know, which, which grant proposals they might fit. Um, yeah, and, you know, it could easily mean that we end up with grants for something that is sixth on our list rather than first, because it's our priorities might be slightly different than the grantors. Okay, thank you. Uh, board member, uh, Vice President Ruiz. Thank you, Ms. Miller and Ms. Foster for your presentation. Um, quick question for Ms. Miller. Um, the upcoming workshop that you are planning to hold in West End Library, are you planning to make that available by Zoom as well? Yes, thank you. Thank you. We were um, we were planning to make that a hybrid workshop, so it's going to be small attendance at the library. It's a small space anyway, so we're going to cap the um, attendance there at, I think, maybe 20 people and then uh, broadcast it um, live on, on, on Zoom, I believe. Good. I mean, the successful the success of the workshop depends on um, public participation. So we want to encourage as many participants as possible. Thank you. For Thank you. Available. Um, and question for um, Ms. Foster. Um, you know, following um, Board Member Cisneros' question on the um, grant projects, um, would like to know the likelihood of these being funded. You know. In the report, you mentioned the funding opportunity in 2022. So is that the application or is that going to be awarded? And how certain are we um, regarding this project getting the grant? And if not, how are we planning on funding these projects? Um, are you asking about any specific projects? No, just in general, how overall approach. I have to confess, this is my colleague, Rochelle Wheeler's wheelhouse, so I'm not quite as familiar with, um, you know, where we are with these. Okay. Certainly some of them have some funding already, you know, um, they have gotten the projects certain a little further. Um, but we, you know, like for instance, Central Avenue is well funded for the current projects, but we have two roundabouts that are not funded. And that's why they're on this project list for grant application priorities. Mm -hmm. In that example, we have, um, for example, we have, we have asked for that as part of the infrastructure money, um, but that is not certain at all. Um, so also any, you know, all these projects. Specific questions beyond that, I could find out and and have um, Alan email you. Yeah, that would be great. And I'm I think uh, you know, I think as you present this to the council, I'm sure they will, they may ask similar questions as well. Okay. And then another, that night. yeah, and <laughs> another question <laughs> is, um, you know, um, again personally, I really. I'm encouraged to see that we are implementing a lot of uh, high priority daylighting projects to stripe the streets. And can the residents request if their street and they see a, you know, questionable intersection that's not on the high priority daylighting list or high impact area, is there a venue for the residents to request that? 
Absolutely. There is um, the street safety concern reports um, category on C-Click Fix, and uh, residents are stating where they feel like they are unsafe on the street or where they've witnessed crashes mm -hmm. or where they've had a near miss. And that would be a great place to put in concerns like that. We are using those reports as we begin corridor projects, as we begin uh, pavement resurfacing projects um, so that we can see what residents' concerns are. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Board Member Hong. Yeah, thank you very much. First of all, that, both reports are excellent reports, very impressive uh, what's been accomplished in the prior year and the ambitious work program that both departments have for 2022. Um, just a couple of questions. Um, the regional, um, the adaptation regional working group, uh, I applaud at City of Alameda for taking the lead on that. I just want a little bit more information, Danielle, on you know what is the objectives and what is what, what is the group, you know, the, the outcomes that this group is trying to achieve. It's, I know it's an ambitious topic and truly is a regional effort, but I'm just kind of wondering what what the working group is trying to achieve. Thank you. Um, yeah, so the city of Alameda did take the initiative in forming this group, and we felt that it was really important and recognized that um, achieving our sea level rise adaptation goals and addressing flooding um, in Alameda is also dependent on other agencies taking action, and that what we do in Alameda affects those, um, everyone around the waterway. Um, so we formed this working group and we wanted to, we were also thinking about, you know, who's looking out for the health of the San Leandro Bay, for example. There's so many different agencies. It's sort of a tragedy of the commons in terms of what actually happens to that bay. It sort of belongs to everyone and no one at the same time. Um, and so we wanted to come together and, and think about how we could both address the health of the bay and the watersheds, how we could improve the resilience of the communities around the bay, um, particularly thinking about some of our low-income communities that are at risk of displacement. If you think of like the Coliseum neighborhood and some of our neighborhoods in Alameda. Um, and, and then we wanted to address um, sea level rise adaptation in a, in a coordinated way. Um, we, we kind of um, glommed on to this um, San Francisco Bay Adaptation Atlas, which divides the entire bay into 30 um, operational landscape units. And these were units that were sort of that were defined with scientific boundaries because they share certain um, characteristics. They have they share common watersheds and they share common sort of um, flow of, of water and habitat, but they cross jurisdictional boundaries. And so there was sort of this idea that if we could organize along these 30 operational landscape units, that that would be a way to sort of work at a sub-regional scale and work up to a more regional plan. So our operational landscape unit is called the San, San Leandro OLU, and it goes from the Bay Bridge touchdown in the north to Oyster Bay and San Leandro. Um, so we really just organized all of the um, jurisdictions. Uh, we brought together community groups, agencies, state, regional agencies. We have some federal agencies as well. Um, and we wanted to create a, 
a unified vision for this project. We wanted to um, coordinate, we wanted to elevate the communities, especially those communities most impacted on the shoreline and um, accelerate projects implementation. And we also recognize that there's a number of places where it's not just the city or one applicant that's gonna be um, responsible for delivering on projects. And so we really needed to sort of be better at coordinating and going after grants together. And I think um, Doolittle Drive is really an example of that. You've got um, the Port of Oakland, you've got Caltrans, you've got East Bay Regional Parks and the Bay Trail. And when we started this project, frankly, everyone was working on their own adaptation efforts in that same corridor. And we, in our first meeting, put everyone's projects on the map and found a bunch of projects related to Doolittle Drive. Um, and in particular, you know, Caltrans was working on a, um, Pavement, they're going to do some repaving on Doolittle Drive in the coming years. And we said to them, well, can you consider sea level rise in your uh, pavement projects, which they had never thought to do before. But And Port of Oakland was also thinking about um, how they were going to adapt to sea level rise and protect the airport, but maybe that doesn't protect the, the Doolittle Drive and maybe it doesn't protect um, the shoreline there. So um, we were really excited. Caltrans has really come a long ways and we were excited to see them request a letter of support from us to um, request additional funding to consider to think about that project and um, to add in some adaptation considerations and make it more than just a pavement replacement project. Um, so I think that's just our sort of near term example of where we've really been able to to collaborate and um, we've also applied for funding um, jointly just submitted an application last week for some joint funding for, for our group to work on an action plan and a vision plan, and then to formalize our organizational structure. Okay, thank you. I think Doolittle Drive is an excellent example for coordination, yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, just a couple, uh, probably hopefully just quick transportation questions uh, for Lisa. Um, there's a couple of uh, roundabout projects that, that are included in the proposal. Um, they all sound like you know worthwhile project. I'm just kind of wondering how does the city determine which streets uh, are priority for for the identified roundabout projects? Given as I know, limited you know limited funds and you know staff and things. Sure. Um, you know, as I mentioned, one of our projects for 2022 is to complete a roundabout screening analysis. And we've already completed the first step of that, which was basically to decide which locations to even take the time to look at. And those were decided based on um, whether they were high crash intersections, whether they are on high um, injury corridors, um, whether they were in um, socially vulnerable areas and um, whether they had the footprint to make a roundabout. Uh, some, some intersections don't have enough space, uh, literal space to, 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 to build a roundabout. So it wouldn't be worth looking at those. Okay, okay. And then my only other question is, is kind of similar to in line with questions from other board members regarding your identified uh, 2022 grant application priorities on page seven. Um, I see the general description all makes sense. And I'm looking at like the top six projects that got 12 and 13 points. Um, they, they all have a common kind of safety alignment, but I'm just kind of wondering what was about these six projects that really kind of elevated them over 
all the other projects. I know there's, I'm sure there's tons of unkept, I'm not unkept, but unmet uh, capital needs out there. I'm just kind of wondering how did these projects kind of rise to the top for grant priority? So they were scored. Um, we started by compiling our project and program funding needs, plus projects in the planning phase that are ready to accept additional funds in the near term and unfunded projects in the transportation um, choices plan. And then we scored them based on a scoring system that was done uh, for, it was basically a update on the scoring system that the city used for our 2021 to 23 capital budget for transportation. And so basically took each goal from the mobility element uh, related to transport oh, each that's the mobility element and and scored the project based on whether it would help the city achieve that goal mm -hmm. and so that aggregate score you know is across the various city goals okay okay thanks a lot that's all i have okay. good thank you uh yeah i'll, I'll just um I'll just have one quick question before we open it up for public comment this is on the transportation side as well. Um, I'm glad to see that there's work being done on Shoreline Drive, which you know is obvious wherever we have connections to parks, we have to make sure that we enhance the uh, ability of safe, safely crossing roads to, because as one can imagine, um, a lot of folks will pass through to, to get to, um, and it'll be a pedestrian experience for the most part to get to those parks. Uh, one place that I don't see that happening, and I don't know what type of collaboration happens with the parks, is at Creeka Park. Um, there is no pedestrian way or sidewalk to get to the actual course or the clubhouse back there, and it's only a drive. So is that something that um, has Which been park? thought Sorry, about? Park, did you say? Creeka? Uh, Park golf course. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, that's it, it's quite dangerous for pedestrians um, to actually walk into the park. Um, it only seems mm -hmm. safe if you're in a car because there is no sidewalk mm -hmm. or um, anything else. So I'm curious, what type of how, how does how does a collaboration work with the parks department or or specifically, I guess, for for the Karika Park golf course? Um, to make that a more safe place for uh, pedestrian movement. Mm. Um, I'll say this, you know, if you if there's a specific intersection, then putting in or a specific place where you feel like the sidewalks are missing, putting that in the street safety concerns on C Quick Fix would be helpful. We do have some improvements planned related to the Earhart School that is nearby. Um, and I don't know of any other plans beyond, yeah, I don't know of any other plans to work on this and I uh, would be happy to look into it. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's more within the park than the actual intersection. Uh, um, in it, oh, okay. That, that's, as to, to get actually when you get off, um, when, when, you come off Island Drive into the park. There's 
Mm. Uh, no sidewalk or anything to actually make your way in there. So I was just curious, like how, how the coordination is working with the parks department, uh, which I assume is um, part of the group that helps manage Carrico Park. So. Okay, that, that, that was my real, really only okay. question on, on this at the moment. Um, okay, you. so let's open it up for public comments. Uh, if you'd like to speak on these items, please raise your hand. You'll have three minutes to speak. If we could have the first speaker, please. Are we able to promote the first speaker? Okay, great. Good evening, planning board members. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi, my name is Cindy Johnson and I'm speaking on behalf of Bike Walk Alameda in support of staff's recommendations tonight, particularly the response to the Transportation Commission statement on the bike and pedestrian bridge. It's an ambitious project to be sure, but to hamper it by predetermining its financial feasibility right now on the cusp of a county funded $1.5 million study that's going to look into the very question of costs seems counterproductive to us. There's still many outstanding questions in, around costs. For example, we know the stated estimate is for a design that meets the Coast Guard's out-of-the-box requirements. These requirements are not at all fixed and some flexibility there could change the equation dramatically. The study will look into that. Alameda is a Coast Guard city and we imagine that the Coast Guard would not, would be, would not be willing to be, or would be willing to be a partner in adjusting requirements in a way that both satisfies their actual needs while making this potentially transformational project less expensive. More broadly, we know that the transportation planning landscape is pivoting in response to immense climate, equity, safety, and housing challenges, and that our notion of feasibility is changing. At every level of government, there's an acknowledgement that practices that prioritize automobiles, often at the expense of so many other aspects of our lives, are not sustainable and are not the path forward. It's not business as usual anymore because business as usual will literally sink us. The goal now is to improve mobility by improving alternatives to driving and reducing driving where possible. Further, there's widespread acknowledgement, most recently from Caltrans, that road widening projects often have the paradoxical effect of generating more driving and getting recongested again, essentially offering little or no long-term improvement at great cost. This is what's truly expensive and what we anticipate we'll be discussing more in the years ahead when we talk about true feasibility. The transportation funding landscape is beginning to change in turn. We see, we see the California Transportation Commission increasing focus on equity and multimodal projects. This trend will continue in the years ahead as the reality that money spent on costly and ineffective road widening projects is money wasted and should be reallocated to projects and projects that actually move improve mobility. Slicing the funding pie differently so it better tracks with our goals of mobility sustainable, and sustainability and aligns with our values of safety, equity, and livability will likely make projects like the bridge more financially attractive. We hope you'll support staff's recommendations to continue pursuing the bridge as planned and give Alameda and the broader region a real chance at more transportation options and a much more healthy and resilient future. Thank you so much for your consideration. Thank you. Next speaker, please. We have two more speakers and first up is Betsy Matheson. Good evening. Thank you. Betsy Matheson, Alameda resident and bicyclist, but I would like to 
talk about a different topic also related to climate. I would love for Alameda to develop a policy that requires new and renovated buildings to have easily accessible exterior clotheslines to reduce the use of clothes dryers, even electric ones. In 2010, on a family trip to Italy, I was very impressed with all the laundry hanging on the outsides of apartment buildings. It was picturesque. I was impressed at the thought how fossil fuel had been saved over the generations by drying clothes using the sun rather than fossil fuel. And I was also horrified at the idea that people in Italy would probably still be emulating us and everybody wanting buyers in their home. Our daughter has lived in Spain for six years. As in Italy, very few people have clothes dryers. Their buildings all have clotheslines outside their windows. Our daughter's current apartment building also has clotheslines on the roof, which gets sun all day long. And we've been using a backyard clothesline ever since. Year-round, I plan when to put the clothes out based on the weather forecast. And if they don't get dry on foggy days, I give them an extra blast in the dryer in the basement. Um, but I, I would love for Alameda to have such a policy. Um, even though we're going toward all electric, we might as well save the electricity and use solar clothes dryers. So please work on a policy to make it easy for people to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. We have one more, our, uh, another speaker, her name is Ruth App. Uh, good evening, members of the planning board. I'm Ruth Abbey from Community Action for a Sustainable Alameda. And I did want to say I'm a huge fan of the planning board and your deliberations. I come to a few meetings and I'm always impressed with the, um, uh, you know, the consideration that you give, uh, very impressed with your work. So thank you so much for all that you do on, on behalf of our city. I did want to shout out also to Danielle Mueller, who is our no longer brand new sustainability and resilience manager, having been here over a year. However, I'm so very impressed with all that she has accomplished in her time in the position and what she has done to advance climate action and climate resiliency in Alameda. We're here to really support the um, recommendations and uh, an update in the annual report, and also for the transportation uh, choices plan and active transportation plan, which are essential to uh, Alameda in meeting its climate goals. Uh, we uh, uh, absolutely um, need these uh, to implement these plans. And I, I do wanna echo the um, comments of the first two speakers to say that uh, right on, I, I recently, um, went all electric in my house and got rid of our gas dryer. So I'm particularly sensitive to the fact that we need to use the sunshine to dry our clothes. And I'm a very supportive of the work with Bike Walk Alameda and making our um, city more sustainable for transportation. I also wanted to recognize and acknowledge uh, board member Rothenberg in your recommendation to the city to pursue the uh, Cool City Moonshot Challenge. I'm very excited. CASA is very engaged in supporting the city in the next steps on whatever it will take to do this. And it's primarily because by applying for the Moonshot Challenge, we will be organizing ourselves 
uh, through our institutions, through our NGOs, through the city, and through our climate block leaders in organizing ourselves to learn and take action on climate. And so even just that activity of organizing to apply for the moonshot will make such a difference in our community. And I really encourage each of you to sign up. Danielle can provide the link to become a community block leader. We do need um, Alameda leaders also to show that kind of uh, support. So thank you very much for um, all of your work and for supporting this work on behalf of our Alameda staff. They are excellent. You are so lucky to have them. And we are so lucky to have you. Thank you. Uh, next speaker, please. Next up is Zach Bowling. Sorry, can you hear me? Okay. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I was muted. Um, yeah, uh, I, I wanted to support staff's recommendation here. I, I Port is great. I wanted to give a shout out to um, some of the improvements with um, public transit in town, um, specifically the AC Transit Line 78 um, that was introduced. I have completely flipped over to using that whenever I take the ferry now. Um, it doesn't get the love that it should <laughs> um, because ridership hasn't returned. Um, and I just want to reemphasize, uh, hopefully they uh, get the city to to double down on making sure that after this pilot is over with the service, that it's not um, just thrown away because the ridership numbers haven't been great with the pandemic. Um, but uh, I much appreciate the call out in the report towards that and um, I'm hoping we can do more to um, encourage less car usage and improve our transit solutions to um, our um, different connection options like the new ferry terminal. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I, that will close the public comment um, section of this agenda item. Uh, next is board deliberations and uh, motions. Uh, would, if you'd like to speak on this item, please raise your hand. Okay, board member Ha. Yeah, sure. Um, I think um, both reports, as I already mentioned, are really excellent. They're really comprehensive, very ambitious. I just wanted to kind of like just personally point out some items that popped out to me that I thought were really important efforts. Um, as I already mentioned, the, the regional effort on adaptation, I think is so important. And Doolittle Drive being a, a key example where regional coordination is necessary. And it's such an important street as an as a um, way to get in and out of the city other than um, other than um, you know the three bridges and the and the tunnel that we have um i i like the efforts to really incentivize uh, existing homeowners or businesses to convert uh to gas appliances i think that's really a critical need if we're going to reduce greenhouse gases as well as incentives to install solar and also uh, EV charging stations within uh, commercial or residential projects. Um, I, I applaud the effort for the seismic retrofitting effort that the city's emphasizing, because I think the most vulnerable populations are those that live in these uh, 
soft story buildings. So I think that's also an equity issue that I think is really important to do. And I also applaud the effort to apply for the Cruise City Challenge. I think that's a nice initiative for the city to take on. In the area of transportation, um, I like I really like the a far sighted effort to continue to explore the feasibility of the pedestrian bridge to Oakland. I think that could be a real benefit. I realize it's a high cost item, but I think it's important to explore the possibilities as uh, one speaker and the staff has already mentioned. Um, I, I like the emphasis on the projects that really promote pedestrian safety. I think that's critical, including the roundabouts and a, a, a number of other proposals that uh, is outlined in the staff report or in the, in the CIP project. Uh, increasing transit ridership, uh, both to the ferry terminal and working with AC Transit. I think once the pandemic uh, is in a better situation, the ridership will increase. And I think it's so critical to promote the transit to reduce auto use and congestion in the city. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing the active transportation plan adopted. I think that's a really important comprehensive policy document. And then finally, um, both plans outline uh, an emphasis on seeking grant opportunities. I think that's critical for the city to uh, uh, it's really proactive with both reports to really look into where grant possibilities are and, and prioritize uh, projects for grants. Um, and obviously the criteria for the different grants are, are, are different, but I think for the city to kind of prioritize ahead of time, uh, both uh, climate change projects as well as transportation projects and some of them are very closely interconnected. I think that uh, shows good foresight. Those are my comments. Great, thanks, Board, board Member Curtis. I, I think that my colleague, uh, Board Member uh, Han, pretty much stated it with the pedestrian bridge. I, I find it hard, though, uh, not to agree with staff in the in the ranking of the projects. If we're putting out a million and a half dollars to study the feasibility of the pedestrian bridge, that's a substantial investment just on the front, even though it's a high price project, I think that given the fact that we're going ahead with the feasibility study, I think that the ranking of the pedestrian bridge should be higher than, than the lower ranking that it has. Um, otherwise, you know, we're putting out the money, let's get, let's get the thing in position that if the, if the feasibility study checks out, then we should apply for that grant and, and follow through with it. I think you get a lot of bang for your buck. Um, that's it. Thank you. Uh, any any other comment? Oh, uh, Vice President Ruiz. Um, just kind of to, yeah, I think as you go before the council, I will kind of have more backup information on some of the data that's provided on both reports, specifically in the um, transportation annual report. When we talk about ridership, um, or the um, trip travels through Posey Tube or any kind of bridges, you'll be interesting to know uh, peak commuting times versus, um, you know, just throughout the day rather than the, you know, trips per day, maybe comparing the peak hours too, because that's really where the congestion is. And so also it would be interesting to see if the um, our work habits has changed kind of now, is it 
reducing the congestion, even though the overall trip is the same, because residents are having more flexibility. So it will be interesting to see, uh, you know, a little more into that data, what is supporting that as you go before the council. And that would be, um, I think, my only comment on that. Um, so question for staff, we need to make a motion on this recommending um, endorsement, right? Or um, I can answer good. that, yes. Um, so Vice President Ruiz, um, I think in the past, this board has by motion um, voted to endorse the um, the reports to council. And along with the motion, you may also add any specific commentary as you would like. That was my recollection, but I would like to confirm. Um, so with that said, I move to um, endorse the, both the annual reports on climate action and resiliency plans and annual report on transportation. And I'll second that. Okay, great. Uh, so just before we take a vote, yeah, I just wanted to add that both, um, I appreciate that both plans are forward looking. My recommendation and, and specifically on the climate action plan, the um, additional bike lanes you could I mean, I, I can sense that I can, you know, I, I ride those lanes. I, I can feel that we, we have been making progress. I think it would be good if this um, report included a map of where the progress is being made and where future progress is being looked to be made to hit the goal um, that's outlined. I, I think it's just be more instructive. It's, it's very helpful as a transportation plan has a map as well showing the uh, priority areas, um, but I, I, yeah, I appreciate both reports and, and um, uh, yeah, also endorse the motion. Um, Board Member Curtis, you have your hand raised. I, uh, I endorse the motion also, but I would like a caveat, if possible, put in there from our board saying that they might wanna take a look at the staff's recommendation and revise or potentially revise the ranking of the pedestrian bridge and considering the investment that's being put into the feasibility study on that. Um, I don't know, Alan, how that can be done or if it can be done, but if it can, um, I, I think that would, would be helpful to the council to, to take a good hard look at that. Thank you. I believe that oh, might be Alan, a yeah, yeah. I believe that might be a question for the initiator of the motion for a friendly right. amendment, and then that can be transmitted to the city council as a comment from the planning board. Vice President Ruiz, since you had made the initial motion, are you good with the amendment that Board Member Curtis described? Yes. Okay, so the motion is to endorse the plans to move forward with uh, commentary from the board to reevaluate the ranking of the uh, bike pedestrian bridge based on the investment that's being made in its analysis for feasibility. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, board member Hum, you still second that motion? Yeah, yeah, I second it. Okay. Alan, why don't we have a vote? Sure. Board member Cisneros? 
Hi, and um, sorry, <laughs> just a, a quick commentary, because I, I believe um, this was already uh, written down as my suggestion of just uh, to more tightly um, show the alignment of the needs work or needs attention areas with the 2022 work plan. Like one of them, I think, is what um, Vice Chair Ruiz uh, alluded to, which is like the the work from home, telecommuting, like how that's uh, not up to the goals that we set for. So um, that would, if, if the rest of the board is amendable, I just want to um, see that reflected in the report when we go to council, if possible. Otherwise, I, um, I support the motion. Yes, Vice President Reese. My understanding is that when this goes forward to council, all our comments will be included. Right? That that is correct. We will we will transmit the discussion, um, but specifically if the if part of your endorsement includes a specific item, we would also um, highlight that. Okay. Is that satisfactory, board members, Snaros? Yes. Okay. Um, okay. Should staff continue calling the vote? Yes, please. Okay. I'll just uh, board members Snaros again. Aye. Curtis. Aye. Hom. Aye. Rothenberg. Aye. Vice President Rees. Aye. And President Sahiba. Aye. And that motion uh, passes. Okay, great. Uh, so moving on to the next agenda item, 7B. Uh, this is for a public workshop to review and comment on the draft housing elements and Alameda Point program uh, to construct uh, housing units on public land. It looks like, Andrew, we have a presentation. Uh, good evening. President Sahala, members of the Planning Board, Andrew Thomas, um, Planning, Building, and Transportation Director. Can you hear me okay? Yes, yeah. we can. Yes. All right, great. And can you see the screen, the PowerPoint? Yep. All right, great. Um, so this is um, the next in our continuing series of housing element workshops that we've been holding with the planning board and for the public to, de to describe and discuss and review different um, pieces of our draft housing element that we're putting together for both state review as well as city council review. This one, this workshop tonight focuses on a program um, in our draft housing element. This is the program that addresses how uh, the city of Alameda hopes to build housing at Alameda Point to accommodate the regional housing needs. The um, housing element program um, focuses on the uh, approximately 55 acres of land, which is currently um, almost entirely owned by the city of Alameda. Um, this land is at the center of um, Alameda Point, but only occupies a small area as, as the planning board knows, but I think many people sort of forget Alameda Point is a huge area of over a thousand acres. Um, so we're talking about a small portion, which is shown up in the right hand 
in this little graphic of Alameda Point, the, the dotted red area is a, effectively shows or attempts to show the 55 acres, the diagram in the middle sort of zeroes in on the um, aerial photograph of, of the area that we believe we can feasibly redevelop um, over the next eight years to develop uh, almost 1500 housing units. The biggest single constraint to building housing on this land is the fact that we have to build all new infrastructure to support that housing. So unlike anywhere else in the city where you might, somebody might purchase a parcel of land adjacent to an existing street with existing infrastructure, at Alameda Point, that doesn't exist. We're building all the new sewer lines, all the new storm drain lines, all the new power lines, all the joint trenches, all the new streets. So we have to put all that in before we can build housing. So the real challenge for the city of Alameda to build 1500 units at Alameda Point over the next eight years is the infrastructure. Um, what we have going to our advantage is we own the land. So we have the land. So it's all about getting the infrastructure built and getting the land into the hands of people who can build the housing. To build 1500, approximately 1500 units, that's about a quarter of our regional housing needs allocation, the 5,300 units that we need to do in, in eight years. So it's a major commitment by the city of Alameda to say, hey, we're gonna do a quarter of our arena on land we own at Alameda Point. Um, the area that we're looking at is, about half of it is in our waterfront town center specific plan. So we've planned for this area. Uh, the city of Alameda has adopted a specific plan for this area and the zoning for this area. Um, the red outlines are sort of superimpose the, the portion of the 55 acres which falls within this waterfront town center plan. As you can see in the top diagram, our planning documents for this area designate this area for residential development. So that's good since we wanna build housing on it. Um, and then the diagram on the bottom is from the waterfront town center plan and talks about height limits. Um, what you can sort of see in the color, coloration of this, of this lower diagram and sort of the concept of the town center waterfront plan is that the land closest to the transit corridor, West Atlantic, the water with the ferry terminal is the highest density. So the highest density buildings, the tallest buildings concentrated um, at that intersection of transit and the water, um, and then lowering in intensity as you move east towards the, the single family Bayport neighborhood. Um, so, uh, that is a portion of 55 acres, all planned for residential, planned for fairly high density residential. Um, we have a developer, um, the Alameda Point Partners that we entered into agreements for, for, these, uh, for this land, um, this portion of the 55 acres. Uh, we refer to it as Site A. Um, as anyone who's been out there knows, um, Phase one of this project is, is well underway with a number of blocks already built. Um, but the, phase two has not been started and portion of phase one are still not moving forward. And then phase three is the area uh, south of West Atlantic, that separate um, sort of long narrow area south of, um, of uh, West Atlantic is referred to as phase three. So the game plan here, since we're trying to get 
infrastructure constructed and housing built in a very short period, 1,500 units in eight years. So we have to, we have to move fast and we have to get going on the infrastructure. Um, site A has infrastructure supporting all of phase one. So essentially West Atlantic, if you've been out there recently, you know that West Atlantic, brand new street, under that street, brand new sewer, storm drain, water, power, all of that. Um, what the diagram on the top shows is that we have no infrastructure yet built in phase two. So before we can build housing in phase two, we need to get that infrastructure built. Um, and then we need to re-entitle phase two. Phase two, as you can see, this is the current uh, uh, development plan for phase two. As you can see, two large commercial buildings on the left, those two big blue squares on the top left in the uh, outlined red area, and then, just a few housing units on the green blocks to the right in phase two. Um, so uh, this site A was originally entitled for only 800 units. Um, what we are proposing to accommodate our housing element um, is to uh, increase the capacity of phase two and phase three um, so that we can get at least 700 housing units built over the next eight years in phases two and phase three and on block 10. Block 10 is was originally envisioned. It's in this area right here. That's sort of the portion of phase two that drops down to West Atlantic. It was originally envisioned as a, um, as a park area with some existing small buildings used for commercial spaces. Um, so the idea would be to re-entitle that for residential, and then of course, re-entitle the whole upper area of uh, phase two for residential, as well as portions of phase three. Point on phase three, we don't actually own that land yet. It has not been completely cleaned up from the Navy, by the Navy. So we, the city of Alameda will not take ownership of phase three, probably until halfway through, and it'll probably come in portions during the eight-year period. So it's really about the priorities for Site A, to get housing built on Site A, Phase 2, as soon as possible. That Block 10, the urban park block, already has infrastructure, because that infrastructure was built as part of Phase 1, so it can get going right away. A small, small portion of Phase 3 over by the intersection of Atlantic and Maine um, that could start right away, but that's a tiny block. But as you can see from the diagram on the top, which shows the infrastructure for phase two, which is not yet built, when that infrastructure needs to get built. So they've done those four big blocks along the, um, the northern edge of phase two can be constructed uh, with housing. As phase three, as portions become available during the term of the eight years, um, obviously those provide opportunities for additional housing. The goal for site A over the next eight years, get about 700 units built. Okay, well, we're trying to get 1500, so we are halfway there. The second half um, would be just to the north. Infrastructure has to be built in a sort of a, in a logical sequence. So site A has to finish in its infrastructure, then we can connect north into West Midway. And this area is all governed by the Main Street specific plan. So we've done a specific plan for this entire area. Um, it's been adopted by the city council. It designates the area, well, the entire Main Street neighborhood 
specific plan areas for residential. So what we're talking about in the next eight years is developing the area outlined in red. Um, as you can see from the right, the sort of the diagram from the specific plan talks about height limits. Um, this is not envisioned as a terribly high density area. It's further away from transit. It's transitioning towards the single family historic buildings up where the number two is. Um, so three to four stories is sort of imagined in this area in the specific plan. Um, this area in red, um, we are under what's called an exclusive negotiating agreement with the Catellus uh, Development Company and their partners, Brookfield Development. Um, they have begun their planning process and sort of site planning process for this area. And it includes really two projects, which we group together as the Alameda Point Collect Collaboratives Replacement Housing, or sometimes referred to as Reshape. Um, this is replacing 200 units of housing that uh, the collaborative has been using since the Navy left over 20 years ago, um, and then building an additional 589 new units immediately adjacent. So they have developed their initial site plan um, for this area. And it includes, with the replaced 200 replacement units, a total of 789 units. Of course, both Site A and the West Midway um, Alameda Point Collaborative Project would have to meet the city's 25% affordable housing requirements. So cumulatively, we're going to meet those requirements. So um, to get this done um, requires a, a sequencing of decisions and actions. Um, and it really, in simple terms, breaks down to this. Um, in the next year, the city needs to get moving on uh, putting all the entitlements in place, revised entitlements for site A to increase the unit count, and new entitlements for what we call the West Midway Reshape Project. Um, so approximately 700 units for site A, approximately 789 units uh, for the West Midway Reshape Project. Um, get going on infrastructure as fast as possible. So housing has to follow infrastructure. So get moving on the construction of the infrastructure. Um, hopefully get moving site A 2023. West Midway soon after that, you're gonna have about five years of phased infrastructure improvements and um, uh, trailing the infrastructure as you put, as each block becomes um, serviced with infrastructure, then vertical housing development can, can commence. So 2025 to 2031 is really when you start seeing um, the housing um, coming out of the ground. Uh, so, um, you know, several hundred units a year over, over that six, seven year period um, with the goal of getting to 1,489 units during the eight year period. Um, this workshop, a little different than the last ones we've been having where we've been focusing on the zoning requirements for privately owned land. This workshop is really about um, how the city manages the redevelopment of property that it owns um, to, to accommodate the regional housing need. I'll add that um, we have representatives from Alameda Point Partners who are our partners for Site A. 
um, on the call tonight who are available to answer any questions as well, if you have any, um, as well as representatives from the West Midway Reshape Alameda Point Collaborative um, uh, Consortium that's working on the Westwood, West, West Midway project. So we're all here to answer questions. This is a workshop. Um, we wanted to really get this out into public conversation and discussion, um, get initial feedback from the planning board about the game plan, the strategy, the site planning, um, any of the land use issues around this, anything that comes to mind that you feel we should be talking about. Um, this is a opportunity to, to start fleshing out these, these issues, um, setting up these conversations. Site A to be re-entitled, of course, has to come back to the planning board for a development plan amendment and a development agreement amendment. Uh, West Midway will have to come back to the planning board for site development plan um, design as well as development agreement. So these are projects that we will be trying to move through the planning board over the next, um, we will need to move through the planning board and up to the council probably in the next 24 months if we're gonna be successful in getting 1,489 units built in eight years on, on these 55 acres. I'm available to answer any questions. Um, this is a workshop for the planning board's uh, review and discussion of this draft program for the housing element. That concludes my presentation. Thanks, Andrew. All right, before we open it up for public comments, um, board questions and clarifications. Uh, board member Curtis. Thank you for the presentation, Andrew. I, I, and forgive my ignorance on a couple of the questions I'm going to ask, but how is how is the 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 how is the the development structured with our with our with their developers? Are we are we is the city selling the land to the developer and the developer building the land? In most cases, the um... The land is coming essentially for free in exchange for them building all the public infrastructure and the public benefits that go along with the land. For example, Site A Phase 1, they built us two city parks and all of the city streets. Um, so, you know, the way, the way it essentially works out... Um, Land at Alameda Point does not have a lot of value because it has so much infrastructure costs associated with it. So um, it, in terms of, is the city making money selling land to these um, partners? No. That, that, that wasn't my point. My point was in, in terms of the financing that's necessary to get the project aboard. And I was thinking if it was a sale, would the city be willing to subordinate the land to the, to the construction financing prior to the time that they're sold. It's a question of what, how, how, how does the city make it easy? One of the keys to getting this thing done on this amb ambitious schedule is to have the financing in place. And in order to have the financing in place, you've got to have underlying value that, that secures the loans. And I was just trying to figure out how the developers can put together the financial packages for this so that they can get this because it's really an ambitious program time-wise, especially in, in light of all the problems in the construction industry right now with deliveries, material, and labor. And that was that was my point, is that the key to this thing is in the financing. 
I, I think you're hard to get the entitlements, but the financing has to be in place. I think you're absolutely right. I also neglected to point out, I think we have Lisa Maxwell, our uh, community development director and director of base reuse, who she does the actual negotiations with our development partners who are also on the phone. So if if Lisa or any of our development partners have any thoughts on, on your comments, um, board member Curtis, I would certainly encourage them to raise their hand or speak up. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, from my perspective, I focus on the land use aspects of it, but everything you're saying, I think is absolutely true. Like at the end of the day, it's about do the dollars work out? And if the dollars don't work out, it doesn't happen. Yeah, that's that's my only comment. It's an ambitious plan and, and we'll work hard on it. Thank, Thank you. Okay, thank you, thank you, Board Member Curtis. Um, board Member Rothenberg. So, uh, Director Thomas, thank you, thank you for this. I, I, I'm always awed that you can uh, put together such a succinct summary of a complex matter as this. So, just uh, tagging on to the last question, the way I read it, I know you explained it, but just to confirm. It's a, the, the sequence of developments is linked like a critical path, right? And, and it's linked through infrastructure. So just two questions about, about that, not to be simplistic, but you already have DDAs with um, the two developers, Alameda Point Partners and um, West Midway Reshap, right? Well, let me just clarify. We at, we have an existing agreement with Alameda Point Partners. Oh, okay. We do not have a disposition and development agreement with West Midway, which is oh, Coachella's Brookfield yet. Oh, I see. You have one though with the APC. Yeah. It's, and, and, then, and then they entered into an exclusive negotiation agreement with Brookfield and Catalyst. So it's like a third party. It's like a third party. And okay, but it's all linked to the condition of the infrastructure, by the way, I was watching uh, Caltrans miraculously trying to put in a crosswalk on Broadway, on uh, Ensenal today. This stuff, <laughs> this stuff, oh, this stuff takes time. Water was everywhere. It was a, a sight to behold. So it, every little achievement is really um, quite profound. So my question was in regard to the paragraph in the staff report that reads like this. Uh, it, this pertains to the 789 units at West Midway Reshap, taking taking the the view that that as you've pointed out in your um, report in your report and the staff summary that these things are linked, that they depend on the successful completion of Site A Phase Two infrastructure and the ability of Catalyst Brookfield to extend the Site A Phase Two infrastructure north into the Midway Reshap, and you say. This, the text says, if Site A is unable to construct phase two infrastructure, then either the city needs to fund phase two infrastructure or West Midway would need to pick up the additional costs which are estimated to be $10 million. So my two questions are, is it, is it, um, it as, as proposed that you're gonna revise the, the development agreement with Alameda Point Partners to do the extra work that they would have to do or you'd have to assume that Catalyst Brookfield is going to do their portion. It, firstly, 
um, uh, DDAs are are bilateral, right? There's two parties. So it, is it reasonable to assume that the other party will concede the extra cost costs and the benefits, A? And B, is there any opportunity for the city to budget as, a, as an allowance, uh, a contingency for the city to pick up some increment, if it's not 10 million, say $2 million, we did it with, used to do with the Department of Finance, you know, $2 million a year for five years, because the whole deal, the whole pro forma for, the, for this very important and um, large development, it's all contingent on some terms that are not by uh, unilateral. And so is there any opportunity for the city to budget in order to fill that gap to keep the deal uh, whole and viable. And thank you for again for really excellent summary. Um, that thank you, um, Andrew. I'm happy to respond to that one if you'd like. Um, yeah, let me just give a quick response and then jump in, Lisa. I just um, please we um, first of all we we think there's an opportunity here to absolutely amend our agreements with the site A development team of Alameda Point Partners and their current development plan, they don't believe with the, with the commercial and the reduced residential, they don't believe it's financially viable, which means it doesn't make sense for them to move forward with the infrastructure. On the other hand, here we are, the city of Alameda, we now need more housing to deal with our housing element. So we see there's a win-win situation here, which is increase the entitlements with more housing, which helps pay for that infrastructure in phase two, which we now need not only to be able to, be able to build housing in site A, phase two, but also it's essential to make the West Midway Catellus project viable so that they don't have to pick up the cost of that infrastructure or we, the city, have to pick it up. Um, what I think is interesting about your question is um, we're sort of on our, under a time crunch right now, like. No, we don't have any extra money laying around to build infrastructure as a city, but we have developers who might be able to bring private capital to the table to build infrastructure. So what can we do with them to build this infrastructure? Um, I do think it raises interesting questions, though, about the future of Alameda Point beyond this eight-year period. The next phases, um, should, this, should we be looking at ways to fund public infrastructure with public funds, as opposed to relying on private capital. If we can, if we can, that then allows us as a city to focus the private capital on things that are of, maybe of interest to us, different kinds of housing types, different kinds of other public benefits or designs that, that might be, um, possible more there may be more flexibility in the development program because the private sector is not trying to cover so many right. upfront costs right you, um, you you might you might use the word incentivize yeah exactly yeah i think it's a good question lisa please lisa thank um, you i'd like to introduce sure. lisa maxwell a community development director thank you andrew i appreciate the time um we are highly focused on the linkage between Phase two at Alameda Point and for the APP portion of phase two and the West Midway project and the West Tower portion of the infrastructure that APP is intent is planning to do. 
which is highly very critical to the West Midway project is really the crux of the matter. It's a 10 to $12 million cost. And so as we negotiate, continuing to do so with APP on what this new and revised deal will look like, that is, that's on our radar and we, we need to craft the solution. And we have some ideas about how to potentially advance some funds and make sure that the um, timing works for the West Midway project. So we're, we're putting together schedules for each of those projects and making sure that that timing aligns for that infrastructure plan along West Midway. Um, to the extent that APP it, you know, will not have it done at the time West Midway developer needs it, then the city may need to step in and may need to sort of bridge that gap. And we're, we're figuring out ways right now to sort of cause that to happen. So it, it's a very important challenge that we need to address. Um, and we have some pretty good solutions in the works. Thank you both. Okay, thank you, uh, board member Cisneros. Thank you for the presentation and report. Um, the 1485 units, that's within the, the cap, the, the Navy cap? Yes, it is. Okay. So, okay. And yeah, yeah I, I asked because um, when reading the realistic capacity, is that like part of the logic? Like if we um, went uh, above any number of the cap, then it wouldn't be realistic because of how the land wouldn't be available for housing. That's right. So um, just for the benefit of everyone else in the public who might be listening. So we have a, um, we get the land from the Navy the, that 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 land comes to us from the Navy with a some preconditions, and one of the preconditions is that um, there's a, a a financial fee that has to be paid um, uh, be, for every unit beyond 1,500 market rate units. Um, so we've already built some market rate units. Um, essentially, what is left for the next eight years after the current units are being built is about 944 units. But for every three units, we require an affordable housing unit because we have a 25% affordable housing requirement. And those don't count against the cap. So when you, um, and then we are doing 200 replacement units for the Alameda Point Collaborative. So they don't count against the cap. So when you add that all up, the market rate that we can do, the 950 odd units, the affordable that has to come with it, plus the replacement units, that's for a housing element perspective, or and that's 1,489 units, which is pretty ambitious for eight years. There's been a lot of talk like, oh, we should change the Navy cap so we can do more housing at Alameda Point. Two factors. One is where from staff's perspective, where we're standing right now, we should be pretty proud of ourselves if we can get 1,489 built. Like, the cap at this point is not a huge issue for us. Like we have we have issues to deal with just to get to fill out the cap. Um, and then um, I forgot my second point, but that was, you know, that, that's kind of what we're dealing with here. So 
let's focus on getting what we can do, get done under the cap, which is you know a quarter of the 25, uh, about 25% of the total arena at Alameda Point. The other thing is just, we've had this conversation at the planning board before, but for anybody who might be new to the conversation, um, under state fair housing law, the idea that we could do all of our arena at Alameda Point, that's not gonna work from a state housing element perspective. So we think a proposal to do 25% at Alameda Point is a pretty good proposal from a state housing, fair housing perspective. Um, it's 25% um, spread through other 75% in other areas of the city. Um, but it's still a pretty ambitious goal to get 1,500 units built in eight years at Alameda Point on land that needs infrastructure. Um, so mm -hmm. that's kind of really what we're focusing on right now. Right, right. Yeah, and, and just to like hone in into your point, the, the 1,500 is ambitious, but it also complies with the housing element law with AFFH and with this realistic capacity provision. So um that, that's helpful. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, and, you know, going back to this whole feasibility and ambitious plan aspect, uh, I think this goal is laudable of increasing the affordable housing ratio from 25% to 50% in the later phases. This was indicated in the staff report. Um, I was just curious, uh, what prompted this and if you could say more um, to that goal of increasing affordable sure. in the later phases. Mm -hmm. No, thank you for asking that question. So we've been having ongoing conversations through the housing element process with housing advocates. Um, our next draft of the housing element, um, which we hope to be publishing in the next couple of weeks, um, we'll include a whole number of appendices that we've been working on, and one of, a, one of them is our housing needs assessment for the city of Alameda. Um, our, uh, the, the need for affordable housing, for small rental affordable units, that is our hugest need. Um, right now, the way that we do affordable housing in Alameda and California is really we rely on the private sector, right? private sector subsidies, market rate units subsidizing affordable units, either 15% or 25%. Um, it's relying entirely on market rate housing to basically pay for affordable housing so that us, the taxpayers, don't need to pay for it. Um, so what we're looking at is, and this idea we've been talking about and housing advocates have been talking about, maybe for us, the city of Alameda and the fact that we own this, all this land at Alameda Point, should we be thinking about other ways of developing our own land so that it's not completely reliant on private sector, private capital, um, and if we did, for example, if we, and this goes back to board member Rothenberg's comments, if we, the public sector, can start coming up with ways to finance the construction of public infrastructure, that means the private sector developer or the nonprofit developer who comes to Alameda and develops that land, land that we own for us, they don't have to cover the infrastructure costs, so maybe they can cover more affordable housing costs. Like it just, it it's 
if our and our if our goal and our need is for more affordable housing and we want to put more affordable housing on publicly owned land this is a strategy to get there is to how can we rethink how we finance these projects back to board member Curtis's point at the very top. Like if the dollars and cents don't line up, it will not happen. How can you, how can you move the various cost obligations around? We also are doing a really interesting. Um, so at the adaptive reuse area of Alameda Point, that's where all the existing historic buildings are. That's where the spirits row is all of that. Those businesses can't afford to put in new infrastructure. So how are we doing it? Well, in the adaptive reuse area, our public works department is building the infrastructure. That is money is coming from leases, but more importantly from property sales at Alameda Point in the historic district. That land is sold, it goes into a city account. Our public works director, I think, I think it's coming up next council meeting. We'll be going forward for approval of a $31 million contract to build infrastructure at Alameda Point, not in the housing area, but in the adaptive reuse area. So we are actually taking steps right now to sort of see how, how well we can do as a public agency building infrastructure for ourselves. And if we find that we can do it and we can do it cost effectively, it could set a sort of example and a, a model for how we might want to start thinking about how to, how to do infrastructure for the rest of Alameda Point as well, which then opens up opportunities for us to sort of think about how our land could be used. Maybe it's not just 25% anymore. Maybe it's something different. Thank you so much. Yeah, I know we have a high, um... BMR, or maybe not high, but we're just catching up to our BMR um, allocation, below market rate allocation. So thank you. Yeah, no, the, the need for affordable housing is, is huge. I mean, and especially for the, the low and the very low income categories. I mean, it's just, so that's the challenge. And uh, it's 15% citywide, 25% at Alameda Point, which is good, um, but probably is not going to get us there. Okay, uh, move on to Vice President Reese. Thank you, Director Thomas. And um, your um, response to Board Member Cisneros' question kind of addressed the majority of what I have in mind. Um, so, Board Member Cisneros, thank you for asking those questions. Um, kind of follow up on the infrastructure discussion, infrastructure, whether it's privately funded or uh, public funded. Or, or the city actually construct, it's not free. Because if you look at um, a lot of new development, for example, um, Pultis, and I'm assuming that um, the Northern Waterfront, those, they, they have mellow roofs. So at the end, you're increasing the cost of the residents. So we really need to rethink how to finance infrastructure and not, not relying on private sector, because at the end of the day, it's not free. It will go back to the residents and you will make those units more expensive. Um, because just the Pulte ones, just the Melrose mil ranges between six to $12,000 a year. So it's a high cost. It's just kind of uh, something to consider. 
um, regarding increasing the units in block 10, are we allocating it from some other future phases to, re to put it in block 10? Or, you know, it's just, we're, we're not. We're just no, increasing no. the overall just, number. Just increasing the overall number. I mean- and On the affordable only, right? No, on, on total. So, just, so the idea here is, you know, we did our original entitlements with site A, you know, which is 68 acres. We entitled it for 800 units in 2015, I believe. You know, in 2015, we had no idea that our arena allocation in 2020 would be what it is. So, yes, we are basically proposing to re-entitle Site A to um, increase the number of units. I don't have the, the, the math done right in my head, but it's essentially originally Site A was at 800 units. We're talking about taking it up to approximately 1,500 units or something like that. So when it was first entitled, it was well below Navy cap. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it so now only, even with, okay, so it was we're not only taking 600 that. of the market rate units under the Navy cap of 1500 units. Okay. So it was just a small portion and of the total will, cap. Even with, so with this, we are not going to take away the um, available units for future phases. Basically. No, 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 okay. no, exactly. Basically, the idea is here. We have a certain number of units we can do under the Navy cap. Mm -hmm. Let's squeeze every single unit we can out of the Navy cap, and let's make them happen on Site A and mm -hmm. West Midway. Okay. And then the, the affordable housing, would it be addressed in Block 10 specifically or in future phases? No, in all, I think the idea here would be we would want to phase one to be 25% affordable, phase two to be 25% affordable, phase three to be 25% affordable. Okay, and so then West how they do to be 25% affordable so that every chunk right. meets our 25% requirement. Right. They need, and, they need, and, I, one, and, we, and we don't want one chunk to burden a second chunk. And it's not block specific, it's phase. Not necessarily, right. If you look at site A, what's built out there today, if you drive in West Atlantic, the first block we call block six, that's townhomes, it's all market rate. The second mm -hmm. block is townhomes, all market rate. Third block is block eight, all deed restricted, affordable, managed right. and supported. Like right. And then block nine, market rate. So each block might have a different percentage there might be some moderates mixed in on some blocks, but okay. basically the idea is to make sure that cumulatively we keep our 25%. And what we probably want to avoid is a situation where we give one development partner less than 25% requirement, which then burdens the second partner mm -hmm. with more than 25%. Because at the end right. of the day, the obligation is really on the city of Alameda. That is a that 25% obligation is an obligation on the city of Alameda through a legal settlement agreement. Okay, yeah, I just wasn't sure whether we're planning on to use doing that 25% per block or per phase, no. but, but thank you for the clarification. Okay, thank you, uh, board member Hong. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for a really good discussion. I'm kind of carrying forward, I'm mean, not carrying forward, but continuing the discussion about the affordable housing piece, which is a real challenge 
Well, you bring up some excellent points. I mean, 25% is a really ambitious number and you know, it challenges financial feasibility for residential development, all of that. And then on top of that, you know, your staff report talks about the need to fund the infrastructure improvements, which are probably quite massive out at Alameda Point. Um, you also talk about at the same time, but these, these are public lands. So that presents an opportunity for, you know, possibly, you know, some 100% affordable housing projects if you get the financing and the grants, et cetera. Um, at the same time, there's a fair housing issue, right? You don't, you don't want to like concentrate all your lo low income and very low at an Alameda point. Having said all of that, you know, the arena numbers that most is getting, and I'm not sure what exactly the breakdown for Alameda is, but it's generally over 40% very low and low income. So given that, I think H, my understanding, HCD is going to want you to account, tell us where these 40% is located. So if Alameda Point, say maybe it's more than that, once you include everything else, the existing projects or in building permit station, whatever. But if you only have 25% at Alameda Point, and then I would guess the other sites are going to be challenging to get more than 25%, where are you going to be able to identify for HCD satisfaction the other, the deficit, very low, low income units? I'm just kind of wondering how that is going to get presented to HCD. My understanding is they're getting very particular about that, especially the very low and low. Um, it's a, a great question. Um, and it is one of the most perplexing parts of state housing law, because what we have is we get a regional housing need determination, um, which uh, Commissioner Hom is right, you know, of our 5,300 units, almost 50% of it is basically, what the, what the regional need is saying is, yeah, you need 5,300 units, but like what you really need about half of that has yeah. to be affordable. Like if you just look at what the need is for housing, that's what it is. Meanwhile, there's also state laws that say if you require affordable housing to be basically subsidized by private development, um, you need to show that it's not a constraint on the ability to just to build that for that to build that project at all. And in fact, state law establishes sort of a, a guideline of of fifteen percent. And so when, like, for example, our inclusionary housing requirement is at 15%, we require citywide that only 15% of a private development be affordable. And we, and we require up to 25% at Alameda Point through settlement agreement, which we know from years of negotiations with developers is a very heavy lift. Um, there is no city in California that has a 50% affordable housing requirement. So the, the question really becomes, well, given all of that, how does HCD decide that a city has actually met its affordable housing obligation under the regional housing need, which might be as high as 50%? And what they do is they look at your zoning. They look at how you zone land. And the, I think the distinction here a couple of distinctions. One is when we talk about affordable housing, 15% and 25%, we're talking about deed restricted units. Those are units that are deed restricted. You can't live there unless you show us your income, your W-2s, and we 
pre-qualify you as a certain income level. Um, HCD, for purposes of housing element, also looks at, well, what does your zoning require? What does your zoning allow? And it, state housing law has um, provisions um, that basically read as follows for a city of Alameda. If you are saying that you have a site that's zoned for a minimum of 30 units the acre, that means you're basically saying it can't be single family homes, can't be single family detached, can't be townhomes. It needs to be basically apartments or condominiums, pretty high density. Well, those are typically more affordable. So HCD gives a city credit for that kind of zoning. So when you say I have a site that's 10 acres and it's zoned for um, 30 units the acre, but it's also zoned to only allow 30 units the acre, which is more, you know, a, a more affordable housing type, HCD will give a city credit um, towards their affordable um, housing allocation um, for that type of zoning. For example, in 2012, the city and 2015, when we had our last two housing elements certified, um, our MF overlay zoning, essentially that's what it did. It, it created that zoning category. So it allowed us to count a certain number of units that might in the future be developed um, towards our affordable housing arena, even though they weren't necessarily gonna be deed restricted. Yeah. We'll see though, you know, each yeah, round we'll of housing element yeah. review is yeah, different. I, I, I know, it's kind of that, it's, it is a difficult question. I guess the other question that comes up is you may get credit for it, but when the project does get developed and say a 75% market rate and is mod or above, which is likely the case, and um, only 25% very low or low, uh, well, HCD, you know, when you do your reporting, saying, okay, where where are you, where are you transferring your other very low low income units to make up for the fact that seventy five percent of these units are basically mod and above, you know. I think anyway, there's a I, think I don't know. I don't. I don't know. No, but I'm not I, expecting I think, an answer. But no, and I just, the, I, I just because we I work on this every day. I mean, I just. I think the direction where we're headed as a state, where we're headed with state law, where we're headed with this housing element process is that, you know, we're just, we're, we'll be bringing our annual housing element report that we have to send to the state. We're gonna be bringing it to you, I think in the next meeting or two. Um, what it's gonna show is in the last eight years, we did pretty well. Like we actually met our arena. We built the total number of units that we said we would build. Like we did good. Mm -hmm. Did we meet our re our affordable housing goals within that? No, no. We only require fifteen percent affordable. <laughs> How? <could laughs> of course, we didn't get to fifty percent. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, we report that every year. Has there been any repercussions so far? No. I think what we're starting to see, though, is we're starting to see new state laws. Yeah which are referring back to your yeah. annual report. So are you eligible for this new funding source, for example? Well, we might see new state laws that say, well, if you meet your regional housing needs, you are. Like that's the way we've been able to get state grants because we've been able to say, hey, we're certified and we're meeting our regional housing needs. When those laws start to get more refined and say, yeah, but wait a second, are you meeting also 
all your affordable goals, yeah, you know, that's, that's when it's that's when it's going to start hurting. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing is likely the direction. But yeah, and, but yeah, but it's as a, a city, though, I think we we legitimately can kind of say, well, we we need to completely restructure how affordable housing is financed in California. I mean, yeah, this the yeah, system's not working. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, thanks, Andrew. I appreciate that. Okay, thank you. Um, Andrew, I just had a couple questions before we open it up for public comment. One is, could you describe again what the parameters are for the reshape um, layout or, or design? Because I see that the first page has, um, or it, the reshape development organized on the east side while the last page has it on the west side. I, I know it's all for subject to change, but what what are those parameters that um, will be kept in mind as this master plan develops? Um, thank you for asking. Um, the need to build a reshape, first of all, just for the benefit of the public, um, Alameda Point Collaborative provides 200 housing units for formerly homeless households and families. Um, they have been there for over 20 years at Alameda Point. They were the first residents of Alameda Point. They took over old Navy housing 20 years ago, which was in bad shape then. So it's been a long-standing goal of the city of Alameda and the city councils over many different terms to basically establish new housing for the collaborative because the buildings they're in right now are disintegrating. Um, they were never built by the Navy to last this long. Um, so what the, what the city did and the city council did about three years ago was enter into a development agreement with Alameda Point Collaborative. It's essentially exchanging land, moving the land, the land that the collaborative had and, and creating land in a footprint in the West Midway area where they could rebuild their 200 units on land that they owned. Then we entered into the exclusive negotiating agreement with Catellus Brookfield which are sort of their neighbors. So we essentially said, hey, Catellus Brookfield, how about you think about developing the land that essentially surrounds the reshape facility, which in the agreement we originally did with reshape, Alameda Point Collaborative, it was, on the, it was right on Main Street on the upper right-hand corner of the site plan. So before Catellus and Brookfield showed up, we had sort of identified that quadrant then we, went, we identified Brookfield Catellus. They started doing land planning. We started talking about infrastructure. We started thinking about what might make the best sense given reshape, where reshape was and their site planning. And we started thinking, you know what? Maybe we've got the collaborative units on the wrong side of the site plan. Two things. One is, wouldn't it be better to put them closer to the center of the action at Alameda Point, which is more to the west, where things are happening? There's more employment opportunities. There's more um, mixed-use kind of activities to the west of this of that quadrant, as opposed to being over by Bayport and Main Street. The other thing that was on our minds is the city's infrastructure project that I described earlier, the $31 million project to, to add infrastructure to the um, historic district. 
actually borders that western edge of the um, of the um, of that of that area. So what we were thinking was for a, a variety of reasons, both just how it might work out with the site planning, but also with the idea that West Midway, Catellus Brookfield would be building infrastructure coming up from the south. The city is building infrastructure to the from the west, heading east, putting reshape at the best possible corner to benefit from infrastructure uh, made sense to us. Um, the uh, there was one more point I was going to make, but I, I lost it. So um, I hope that answers the question. It's at this point the city has a development agreement with Alameda Point Collaborative and Reshape for the northeast corner. We are contemplating this idea, the, the pros and cons of moving them to the to the left-hand corner of the site plan. Um, I think they're evaluating it. We think there are some real benefits to that move. Um, at the end of the day, it would have to be a mutual decision by both the collaborative and the city of Alameda City Council um, to, to amend those agreements. Okay, great. Uh, that's, that's helpful to understand. Okay. Um, just one yeah, last clarification, if I may. The idea of this partnership between Catellus and Brookfield and, and the collaborative, the collaborative has their land, which they already own. Mm -hmm. They have probably can pull together the resources to build their buildings. What they don't have is the resources to build their infrastructure. So the idea with the, and the concept of the agreement with Catellus and Brookfield is, Catellus Brookfield, you build infrastructure not only for your project, but also for your partner, the collaborative, mm -hmm. so that they can then build their vertical improvements. So that's kind of the connection between Brookfield, Catellus, and um, why we paired them up with Reshape. Right, right. Okay. Um, that's helpful. Okay. Uh, why don't we open this up for public comments? If you'd like to speak on this um, item, please raise your hand. You'll have three minutes. Okay, uh, we have, do we have three the hands up. first speaker. Okay, great. Okay, we have three hands up, and first is Sarah McIntyre. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. One, um, good evening, planning board members. Uh, my name is Sarah McIntyre, and I'm a senior project manager at MidPen Housing. And since 2014, MidPen has been the development partner of the three collaborating partners that Andrew mentioned, Alameda Point Collaborative, Building Futures with Women and Children, and Operation Dignity, who um, operate housing for formerly homeless families and children and veterans out at Alameda Point for many years in former Navy housing. And together we are working to rebuild and expand the existing supportive housing at Alameda Point, which is what, uh, which we call the Reshape Project. And we are working closely with Brickfield and Contellis who uh, will be constructing the critical infrastructure components necessary to support the redevelopment of the Reshape affordable housing into new high quality, accessible and energy efficient homes. And I just wanted to introduce myself and let you know that I am available to any, answer any questions that you may have about the Reshape project. And I also wanted to express our deep support for um, Brickfield and Catellus's West, West Midway project. 
and their forthcoming disposition and development agreement, as well as our support of amending the Site A development plan to increase the housing capacity of Alameda Point partners, both of which will be big steps to, uh, towards making the reshape project a reality, something we've been working for many years to um, and already have a DDA with the city to rebuild the housing, but as um, Andrew has mentioned, the infrastructure continues to be a key issue. So um, we really appreciate your time and consideration and support of this project, and um, we hope to see the infrastructure get, get moving soon. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, could we have the next speaker, please? Next is Zach Bowling. Uh, evening planning word. Uh, yeah, uh, Commissioner Homs sort of read my mind and hit almost every one of the concerns that I had. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's sort of unfortunate. It's good, but it's unfortunate that we have that 25% requirement there. It's it's just a huge ask. Um, I love it as a housing advocate, but I it's just so much to sort of prove to HCD that it can be done. Um, so it puts a lot of burden on us to do that. And so I had a thought, maybe um, just like we're going back with the Navy renegotiating our cap, maybe we go back and talk to um, Renewed Hope. Because um, like for me, as another housing advocate, I would say I, it's sort of unfortunate to see a concentration of where most of our lower income or moderate income um, or very low income housing might be just put in this area that we've seen on our fair housing maps is not sort of a high resource area. It's a bit further from groceries and schools for some folks. And it's... It's good. I mean, all the affordable housing we can get, but it, that one location, it's sort of unfortunate that we've, we're putting it all in one place. Um, I would say maybe we could lower to something like a 15% like the rest of the city and maybe do a Berkeley style affordable housing overlay in the same area. And in that fashion, maybe we could have HCC HCDC it as something that could pencil out as viable, but we could still just highly encourage um, affordable there with incentives. Um, I don't know, it's sort of an idea been kicking around as maybe an option to sort of um, reduce sort of our, our, our blowback we might get from HCD that um, on showing that that's completely viable. But I, I'm sort of speaking out loud. I'm not speaking on behalf of any of the organizations I'm in. Um, I'm just watching today. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Next speaker, please. Okay, next is Doug Biggs. Thank you, good evening, can you hear me okay? Great, uh, my name is Doug Biggs, I'm the Executive Director of the Alameda Point Collaborative and uh, Sarah and Andrew have both done a very good job, I think of describing the reshape project, so I won't uh, repeat a lot of what they had to say. I just a couple of things I do wanna add though, is I think it's important to understand that the reshape project itself was designed with the very active involvement of the residents we serve. And it's not often you really get to design a program around and using and, and involving and engaging the residents that, that are gonna be living there. Uh, they provided a lot of very helpful feedback and, and design ideas on the project. And we think it's gonna be set the real standard for a supportive housing when, it, when it's built. As all the board members have identified tonight, this is really the infrastructure part of the program as, as far as the housing element goes. Um, we've been working on the reshape project since 2007, along with our, our very integral partners, Building Futures and Operation Dignity. 
um, you know, we we believe that together we've built an amazing community out of really crappy housing out there. And all along, uh, getting past the infrastructure we have and improving it has been the stumbling block. And while we talk about how hard it's going to be putting in new infrastructure, I also want you to imagine how hard it is keeping a community alive with the very bad infrastructure we have out there now. It is a tough job to do. Um, so we're looking forward to the West Midway project obtaining entitlements and moving forward um, so that we can uh, put our vision into reality. We also, as Sarah pointed out, strongly endorse the amendment of site A to add an additional 700 units. I lived out there through the first couple of development efforts that were large, full-scale, site-wide master development. And I remember sitting in a meeting out at uh, Bay Farm at the at the golf course with Andrew and Jennifer Ott and them saying, you know, it's time that we divide this thing up and conquer it development by development. And that's worked. That finally worked. And what we're seeing is as the developments go forward, things change. And we're seeing that at, at, with Alameda Point Partners now. So adding on an additional 700 units is totally appropriate. It'll help create a critical mass for a complete community out there. On the other hand, we don't want to see all of Alameda's arena allocated to Alameda Point, as some have called for. Uh, the housing element proposal, uh, the, as proposed, creates a needed diversity across the island, and that's what needs to happen. Thank you very much. Okay, next speaker. Okay, we currently have two hands up. Next up is Karen Bay. Yes, uh, good evening. Um, so for Alameda Point Site A, um, it is currently entitled for 600,000 square feet of commercial, of which 200,000 was entitled for retail. Um, block 10 is a park, but it was entitled for an urban kind of retail village park. So the question that I have is, um, so we're giving up potentially 600,000 square feet of commercial retail. It's not clear. That wasn't included in the presentation. And if we are, what is the new entitled square footage for retail in Site A? Is it 100 square feet? Is it 50,000 square feet or less? And which buildings are included in the new entitlement? Um, I, I think we need to identify this is a planned development. So I think we need to be specific. Um, and then we need to define the new zoning codes that you included in the presentation. What is CE? What is CV? If, if, if it's a village, commercial village, then what is the square footage for this area? So in 2002, the city of Alameda did a retail leakage study, and it showed that Alameda residents spent over $200 million annually outside the city of Alameda. As a result, a new strategy was created to recapture that leakage and we increased our sales tax revenues significantly. I'm concerned that if we don't, if we're not aware of what we're doing and we don't carefully plan, given you know, how much we're giving up, we could find ourselves right back in the same situation. The city of Oakland has a pipeline of new uh, retail um, square footage retail of about 470,000, 270,000 square feet at the A's stadium, if it gets approved, and 200,000 square feet at Brooklyn Basin. So 
I, of course, we want to share our retail. We want to shop everywhere, but we, we need to be careful that we don't find ourselves back in the same situation, giving up what we worked so hard for. And I know that retail has changed, but without a, a plan, I, I'm just concerned that we will find ourselves right back in the same situation. So um, we're also talking about giving up retail at South Shore and other of our shopping centers. So we, we just need to be careful. And I'm particularly concerned about Alameda Point because it was originally entitled to 600,000 square feet. And it's not clear what we're gonna end up with. Okay, thank you very much. <clears throat> thank you. Next speaker, please. Next up is Valeria, Valera Liz. Uh, speaker can unmute. I'm not sure if they're having audio difficulty. <laughs> There's nothing on our end, I assume, that we can. Okay. Um, if the speaker stays on, we will have a section of the meeting towards the end where we'll, we'll take public comments again. But uh, we'll, we'll have to close at the moment since we could not connect with that speaker. Okay, if we could um, go ahead and have uh, board deliberation. This is a workshop, so there's no action to be taken here. Uh, if anyone else has additional insight to add to the discussion, uh, please raise your hand. Okay, seeing that the board has not raise, no, no one's raised their hand, we'll close this agenda item and move on to the next agenda item. Thank you, Andrew, for the presentation and discussion. Next agenda item uh, are the minutes. Uh, we'll first review this and then open it up for public comments. Uh, if there is any, does, these are the draft meeting minutes for January 24, 2022. Uh, if you would like to state any corrections or comments on these minutes, please raise your hand. Uh, no, okay, seeing there's none, let's open it up for public comment. Um, does anyone in the public wish to speak on the draft meeting minutes? Please raise your hand. Do we have anyone? Uh, there is no one else um, uh, re requesting to speak. 
I see. Okay. So we'll close the public section of uh, this item. Why don't we go ahead and um, do we have a motion to approve these minutes? Uh, Vice President Reese. I move to approve me minutes. Okay. I'll second. Okay. And board member Curtis second. Uh, Alan, let's go ahead and take a vote. Board member Cisneros. Sorry, I moved too slowly. <laughs> um, I wanted to make an amendment um, oh. in the meeting minutes. Sorry about that. Um, in the section where board member Cisneros was also in favor of the multifamily overlay. Um, I, I think it should be clarified to, oh, is open to multifamily overlay. Um, the discussion around this was when possible, uh, I prefer making direct changes to the zoning code. So just wanted that small clarification. Thank you. Sounds like that was noted. So we'll continue. Uh, the motion could be amended, Vice President Ruiz, to take into account board member Cisneros' correction. Yes, I amend my motion to approve the meeting minutes with the board member Cisneros' um, comments. Okay. Great. Um, and, and the second from Curtis. board member Curtis. Yeah. Second okay. Right. Okay, let's uh, try again. Um, board member Cisneros. Aye. Curtis. Aye. Hom. Abstain. I wasn't at the meeting. Rothenberg. Aye. Uh, Vice President Rees. Aye. And President Saheba. Aye. And that motion uh, passes with one abstention. Okay. Staff communications. Um, Anything on 9A or 9B, Alan? Uh, 9B, just for the next planning board meeting, um, staff is teeing up uh, another housing element workshop on um, specifically zoning text amendments. We plan to bring forward uh, amendments to the R districts again, which I believe you saw in January. So that's uh, okay. at your meeting on uh, March 14th. Okay, thank you. Uh, written communications. Oh, excuse, uh, excuse me, um, President. Oh, Taylor. sorry. Yes. Oh, um, on PLN 210545, 11, uh, 1611 Sherman, can we pull that one for review, please? from the planning, recent actions and decisions, number 9A. It's the last one. Um, it's the last one in the list. Okay, I see that. This is for the uh, three wireless telecommunication antennas. Um, board member Rothenberg, if I may, um, the I believe the AMC requires uh, call for reviews to be um, submitted in writing with justification. You could uh, oh. email that to me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, but just to clarify, don't we usually just note which 
even though I did that the last time, don't we, don't we usually, wasn't our practice to just note in, um, in this section of the agenda, a, a call for a, a review? And, and are you just, are you verifying that each time we do that, we would then ask in writing, or is it just the nature of that one? Yeah, actually, no, it's, it's it, uh, the f appropriate practice in the AMC is for okay. board members to um, provide the justification, Certainly. explanation. I'd be pleased to do that then. Thank right, you. Thank you. Board member Ha. Yeah, I just want to let uh, uh, Alan and the rest of the board member know, unfortunately, March 14th, I won't be able to attend that meeting because I'm actually involved or leading another housing element workshop for another jurisdiction. So apologize for that. I would have liked to be part of that discussion, but I understand. Thank you. Thanks for letting us know. Okay, uh, agenda item number 10, written communications. There's a letter from ACT dated February 11th, 2022. Uh, I don't do we need to speak on this or is it just for information purposes? Uh, that's just for information. We received okay. a letter and uh, we're passing it to the board. Okay. Great, thank you. Okay, board communications. Uh, board members may ask questions for clarification, make brief announcements, uh, or make uh, brief reports on their activities. Uh, would any board members like to speak in this agenda item? No? Okay. Uh, oral communication. Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry, board member Curtis. Go ahead, please. Uh, my question, my question is to to um, um, Alan regarding the polling for review on the on the I've been on this on this uh, committee for five years and it's never been required to to you know, put it in writing and do a justification other than it was something that, that we felt needed. What, why is, has this been a recent change in policy? Uh, no, I believe it's um, from a previous call for review. Uh, we had reviewed our procedures for call for reviews and, um, it, uh, and I believe we realized that it was a, a necessity. I mean, especially for applicants, um, just to know why uh, the call for review is uh, was was issued by the members of the planning board. Um, okay, so one other question, and if we need to call something for review, does that mean that it has to be called for review? The written has to be put in prior to the meeting. Uh, no, in it could words? be it could be part of the meeting. The way we've uh, structured the approvals um, to the the planning board meetings fall within the middle of the appeal or call for review periods. So if I wanted to call something for review, I would call orally call it for review and then follow up with an email giving the request plus the justification. Correct. Just the reason. I mean, it, it could be, yeah, it, it, right. It could okay. be really for any reason. It also helps staff because we're going to then write a staff report for a public hearing about a call for review about a decision we made. If we have some information about what the concern was or what the issue is, we can address that issue in the staff report. It might be, oh gosh, we didn't think about that. That's a good point. Maybe we should change our decision. Or it might be, oh, we did think about that. 
and here's why we made the decision we made, you know, yeah. on those along those lines. It's just a way to kind of keep everybody sort of in the know about why we're having a hearing. Like, what's the issue? Well, I'll tell you that in the in the five years that I've been doing this, the calls for review have been less than four times. So it, it's not a it's not no. a, a normal. Right. It's been very random. Are you right? saying that three of them were from me? <laughs> no, not at all. That's not at all what I'm saying. Believe no. me. <laughs> we, we, we've, been, we've been getting more experience with calls from re, for review, mostly through council calls for review. So I follow um, that. I understand. That's, I understand. that's what has forced us to go look back to the code. And it's actually a longstanding city a municipal code requirement like if there is a call for review that there needs to be you know as alan said it's you know what is the reason for the call like what what is it about the decision that gives you pause and then we sure. that's right. what we have a hearing about well we do and just i know we're not we're not having an open public discussion about the topic now but just procedurally and governance wise for, for me and and for the benefit of the public having been in doing public work for a long time i i would generally and i put this in the last one and then it was included in the staff report if it's something unusual that i i don't have the background there i just have the address and a short description if it's something that's a you might say a one-off and I feel that it would be informative as a precedent for the public to understand that so that the next time we see one, we know the background of it, then I might ask that that item come forward because it benefits the public and future applicants to know, well, what was the background of this and, and why is it informative to allow it to be a ministerial review rather than a full planning board meeting. And thank you, Alan, for... Um, uh, extrapolating thank from, you. The, from the ordinance. Yeah, thank you for okay. the education. So, Appreciate it. Selena, you had your hand raised. Did you want to add anything? to? Oh, this? thanks. I just had a quick uh, clarification. Um, board member Curtis, you asked if you needed to raise a call for review at the meeting. You, you really don't have to if you think of something after the meeting, um, but it's within the 10 day period. Um, as long as you let staff know that you'd like to call an item for review, or if any of you think of something after a planning board meeting, um, it, it's still considered timely. Terrific. Thank you so much. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Yes, thank you for that clarification. That's that's a very important point. Um, the, uh, the Basically, the planning board and members of the public, I mean, this is the appeal period. So it's a 10-day period, closes, end of business on uh, Thursday. So again, we've 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 structured the timing so that these approvals um, uh, uh, with the appeal periods that kind of um, uh, overlap the planning board meetings. But your calls for review can come in at any time during those ten days, calendar days. Terrific, thank you. All right, we'll move on to the next agenda item: oral communications. Uh, this is anyone may address the board on a topic not on the agenda under this item. I know we had a speaker who had challenges um, connecting on audio. They're wanting to talk during this time they can as well. Uh, by raising your hand, do we have any speakers raising their hand? No, okay. So uh, seeing none, we'll close oral communications and uh, we'll adjourn. Thank you everyone.
Goodbye, everybody. Be safe. Good evening. Thanks, everyone. Take care.